0: Hey everybody, John Pars here. The podcast is Mindfulness for the Soul. Today's podcast is called Depression, an Unwelcome Catalyst. And it's good to look at our diagnoses, our symptoms, our conditions as having positives as well. This is not to make light of anybody suffering from deep depression right now. As a psychotherapist, it's my job to help people try to change their outlook about their symptoms and see it in a different way. And so hopefully this podcast will shed some light on that. So let's talk about depression. What is depression? Well, as opposed to mild everyday ups and downs um, is when an individual's symptoms are so acute, so serious, that it's affecting his or her ability to function in life. For example, If an individual's basic everyday routines are negatively affected and cannot be completed, or if the individual is unable to fulfill major role obligations, such as going to work, going to school, or taking care of children and family, that's different too. So to diagnose an individual with a serious depression means they have to be experiencing the following. Keep in mind that these symptoms need to be present for two weeks or more So here are the symptoms. Feelings of hopelessness, sadness or low mood, sometimes suicidal thoughts, loss of interest in things that usually give you pleasure, poor concentration, irritability and restlessness, fatigue, loss of appetite, insomnia or oversleeping, and feelings of guilt. Depression is the most common mental illness in the United States, second only to anxiety. The CDC reports that depression affects more than 26% of the U.S. population. In addition, future projections estimate that depression will be the second leading cause of disability, trailing only heart disease throughout the world. But contrary to what most people believe, depression is treatable. And when it's identified early, it can be prevented from getting worse. So why do people get depressed? Well, there isn't a quick answer for that. There are many reasons why people suffer from depression. We don't know exactly why, but there are many theories. We do know that some people are born with a genetic predisposition for depression, as well as other mental health conditions. One of the most compelling theories is that depression is caused by chemical changes in the brain, specifically with certain neurotransmitters, the ones that are most vital for regulating our mood. When we're in the grips of a depressive episode, unbeknownst to us, we experience a malfunction in the brain. The chemical messengers, the critical neurotransmitters that help to regulate mood and affect are just not firing right. And the decreased brain activity in the hippocampus leads to negative emotions and the loss of cognitive processing and rational thinking. Some of these neurotransmitters are serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Serotonin, for example, is responsible for controlling very essential bodily functions like sleep, eating, sexual activity, and most importantly, your emotions. So if there is a decrease in production of serotonin, that's obviously going to cause depression. Another example is the role of dopamine. Dopamine plays an important role in controlling your drive to seek out reward, pleasure and soothing. That's why people often complain that when they're depressed, they don't find pleasure in doing things they usually enjoy. These chemical changes are sometimes caused by environmental factors mentioned earlier, like trauma, events that kindle the fire of genetic neurodivergent brain nature. Depression can also manifest in lesser symptomatic ways that don't resemble the criteria I mentioned. For example, depression can manifest as irritability, impatience, feeling edgy, getting upset, and getting upset easily, sorry, and a general kind of apathy about life. It's important to know these symptoms because there are many people out there who don't realize they are mildly depressed. Hence, they may blow off these symptoms and never address them. But regardless of its origin, when depression gets serious and becomes chronic, it's considered a clinical depression. A clinical depression is when an individual's symptoms are so acute and so severe that their life is significantly impaired. In many instances, people suffering from depression are unable to function at all. And in some cases, people become suicidal as well. In the United States, up to 15% of those who are clinically depressed die by suicide. Research shows that 90% of people who kill themselves have depression or another diagnosable mental health or substance abuse disorder in them. If depression is considered an illness of the brain, then it presents us with problems because we can't see a brain injury. Hence the remarkable stigma mental health issues have, especially around depression. So let's talk about a different part of depression. Here's one called high-functioning depression. So even people we revere like famous luminaries and celebrities, are affected by depression, too. For example, journalist and author Anthony Bourdain, designer Kate Spade, actor, comedian Robin Williams, and recently, DJ Stephen Twitch Boss all ended their lives by suicide. Very sad. So you could appear to have it all. Fame, success, respect from your fans, your friends and loved ones and even be financially secure, yet be depressed as well. Most people scratch their heads and wonder why. Well, depression and suicide do not only affect those whose struggles are obvious. High functioning depression highlights that a person can experience significant distress and symptoms of depression and not have it be evident to people around them or even to people that are close to them. The way someone appears in public and in their professional life does not reflect their whole functioning or what they are grappling with inside. People are good at masking and hiding how they feel simply because we live in a society that pedestalizes people that are cheerful, happy, and positive. There is one suicide in the US every 11 minutes and 90% that die by suicide have an underlying mental illness at the time of death. But for many who may not have an official mental illness diagnosis and have the capability of making impulsive fatal decisions, it can be worse. As a result, they suffer in silence. But in actuality, we don't need to scratch our heads because the only normal people in the world are people we don't know very well. Think about that one. The only normal people in the world are people we don't know very well. Everyone, even celebrities and people with ample financial resources, may be fighting a battle within them that many of us don't know about. Now, one of the most intriguing public figures from our past who suffered severe bouts of depression was Abraham Lincoln. The evidence of momentous environmental events that shook his life early, like trauma and abuse, are very clear, and we know that that sometimes is the reason why people suffer from depression. So granted, it's not easy to posthumously diagnose someone that lived over a century ago, but according to letters written to his wife and several close friends and confidants, Lincoln was a man that was pre-wired for despondency. Abraham Lincoln's formative years were severely affected by not only the passing of his mother, who he was close to, but also a complicated relationship with his cold and cruel father. Lincoln's father, Thomas, illiterate and socially unpolished, often beat his son for choosing to read books instead of completing chores. The relationship was so strained and acrimonious that Abraham did not visit his father at his deathbed and refused to attend his funeral. Lincoln's potentially predisposed psyche coupled with his mother's death and father's mistreatment may have emotionally damaged him. Even after his mother died, his father left him and his sisters for long periods of time unaccompanied looking for a new wife. The trauma of losing his mother the abandonment and the lack of empathy from his father may have sealed Lincoln's psychological fate. But even though these events left him susceptible to depression, we know that depression is not always static and unchanged. According to writer Claudia Kalb, depression does not have to be incapacitating to qualify as depression. The key feature of the condition is that these episodes come and go, It does not plague people every minute of the day. There were obviously periods of time where Lincoln, despite his unofficial diagnosis, had clarity of mind and was able to accomplish so much like presiding over a country in turmoil, fighting a brutal war, and ending slavery. He might be the most accomplished high-functioning depressive in history. Depression can be a catalyst for boosting people to achieve great acts, as we just discussed, even in their more dreadful states because they fear the incapacitating effects of despair. Calb, author of Andy Warhol Was a Hoarder, writes that depression and other mood disorders in conjunction with positive attributes, including empathy, creativity, analytic reasoning, and resilience, might have inspired exceptional people during times of crisis. In other words, great performers get stage fright, doctors have horrible hypochondria, and even Pulitzer Prize winners battle self-doubt. Other examples are Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi. All of them changed the world and they all battled depression, yet their accomplishments are legendary. So could depression make people better leaders, better writers, philosophers, and composers? Politician, diplomat, and historian Francois René de Chateaubriand wrote, the most disastrous times have produced the greatest minds. The purest metal comes of the most ardent furnace and the most brilliant lightning comes from the darkest clouds. Before depression was given a diagnostic categorization, ancient Greek philosophers called melancholia, which is what it was called then, the affliction of geniuses. They saw the upside to sadness as being the impetus for fueling literary and artistic creation. They believed that many of the great works of art could only be born from the enlightening catalytic result of human suffering. Catalytic result, very interesting. These days, the psychological or philosophical benefits of suffering have basically disappeared. We don't address those issues and that's why I chose to talk about it today. Lincoln biographer Carl Sandburg said that, Lincoln came to this earth he arrived embodying steel and velvet, a man who was hard as rock and soft as drifting fog, a man who holds in his heart the mind of the paradox of the terrible storm and peace unspeakable and perfect. But you don't have to be considered the greatest president of all time to possess the paradox of mental health distress and periods of stability and euphoria. Many of us understand this irony because our depressive moods and the capacity to be productive in our lives. For example, as a writer, there are times when I think my work has value and other times it feels like I couldn't write a grocery list. As a psychotherapist, there are times when I feel like I've helped people stop engaging in negative behaviors successfully and other times it feels like I couldn't stop a nosebleed. As a young boy, the comments I endured about my mental health issues were always confusing to me. Whenever I heard well-intentioned platitudes, such as, get over it, John, or don't worry about it, or what are you so anxious about, or you don't look depressed, I often felt worse. Not because I found the oversimplification of my feelings to be insensitive, but because even though it sounded illogical enough to have the ability to alter my mood on my own, I couldn't make myself feel better. So as a result, I felt even more helpless because if I did not have the willpower to stabilize it, then I was a weak person. My favorite slogan of all when I was in my distress was, tomorrow is another day. Now, the problem with that one Is that sometimes I didn't know if I even wanted to live another day. So the concept of a hopeful tomorrow wasn't always looking so good if you were living in my head at the time. Sadly for a long time I thought I was the only one that felt this way. I didn't know there were so many other people out there that got subjected to this kind of armchair indifference. It was a very lonely time for me. So Because we don't always have the wherewithal to change that, I look at depression as not something that we have a choice about. We do have a choice to try to be positive each day, but getting depressed is not a choice. Let me explain. So many years ago, and for the first time in a while, actually, I fell into an episode of abject depression that kicked my ass straight to hell. We've all heard the cliche that dentists get cavities and bankers go bankrupt. And in the same way, then, your average garden variety psychotherapist suffers from mental health issues too, right? Fair enough. However, this one was different. This was the big D, the big depression, that menacing 10-letter word that carries so much shame and stigma that no one likes to admit having it, let alone even talking about it. So I mean navy blue days, ebony black nights, and every single dark shade in the Crayola box. I was the farthest thing from a high-functioning depressive in those days. I was like Lincoln in the most wretched days, but minus the brilliant mind, strong will, huge vitality, and all the incredible accomplishments he's known for. Like many kids, my childhood was chaotic and inconsistent. Sometimes it was even harsh. So I escaped reality by indulging my beleaguered senses with rock and roll music and by plunging headfirst into the unlimited fantasies of motion pictures. Movies were my jam, my muse. They always delivered. And the discovery of marijuana, of course. And a few other mood-altering substances also helped as a needed sense-enhancing cocktail, but that was in the past. I don't do that stuff anymore. So one evening during that murky interlude of depression, I re-watched the 1957 Western Gunfight at the OK Corral with Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster. Not the best movie in the world, but it's got its point. So Kirk Douglas plays Doc Holliday, an ex-doctor, gunslinger, an avid gambler who is slowly dying from tuberculosis. There is a memorable scene when Holliday is playing poker at a saloon. At the same time, a gang of Rough Riders are shooting up the town outside. You can hear gunshots and people screaming and yelling. Bullets fly past Holliday shattering lamps, liquor bottles, and boring holes in the wall of the the saloon. But he doesn't flinch. He doesn't blink or move a muscle despite, despite the blizzard of lead whizzing by his head. He looks up at the terrified car dealer who naturally wants to end the game and take cover and says stoically, just keep dealing, I'm not breaking this run, hit me. Presumably, he was winning. I was always in awe of Holiday's bravery. But this time, something occurred to me. This guy is suffering from tuberculosis. He knows he's going to die. That's why he chooses not to move. Depression can be similar. When it's acute, you don't care what happens to you. The problem is, most of us don't get to choose like Doc Holiday does because most of us are not dying of an incurable disease, but sometimes it feels like we are. When we are depressed, we don't choose our thoughts. Depression chooses for us. Another character who is desperate and suffering from an incurable disease is Walter White in the TV series Breaking Bad. White, played by actor Bryan Cranston, magnanimously chooses to make sure his family is taken care of financially before he dies from terminal lung cancer. Granted, he chooses a life of crime, which I am not condoning, but he is oblivious to the consequences of the law, just as Doc Holliday is oblivious to the bullets. The difference is that both characters have the ability to choose. Same desperation, different cognitive process. I realize now why I have always related to characters that have nothing to lose. Besides decreasing my depression and feeling moved by their self-sacrifice, it also makes me feel less alone when I put myself in their shoes. They are like family to me. The truth is, until you experience severe depression yourself, until you know what it's like not to care if you get hit by a bullet or stricken with a fatal illness, the reality of depression is too deep for the inexperienced mind to grasp. For example, the word depression was an import in my immigrant parents, to my immigrant parents. In the area that they were raised, the 1930s and 1940s, the words depression and anxiety did not exist. Mental illness was assigned to psychotic people isolated in padded rooms wearing straight jackets. So, as a child, in the rare instances when I did opt to share my mental distress with my father, for example, he often replied with a calculated, guilt-inducing line that was genuinely meant to toughen me up. He would say pointedly, when I was your age, I held three jobs. Or he would remind me, look, you have a roof over your head, clothes to wear, and plenty of food to eat, so there is nothing for you to be sad about. I respected, loved, and feared my father all at the same time. I believed every word he said. If he told me there was cheese on the mountain, you better believe I was bringing crackers. However, I quickly learned to be more tolerant of my sad thoughts. I learned that depressed people, including myself, simply wanted attention, we wanted care, we wanted to be listened to. But we were seen as people that were escaping accountability. In other words, to them, depression was a choice. However, as a result, I never learned to hate my father because of that, but I did learn to hate myself. Today, I treat my depression with every tool that I have The most vital one is reaching out to others because I know I can't do it alone. However, 30 years ago and beyond, I would have simply invalidated my hopelessness as a weakness and would not have taken the steps to get well. It would have been like watching the overrated 1997 film Titanic over and over again, hoping the ship doesn't sink. And as we know, it always sinks. Although I am not Doc Holliday or Walter White, thankfully, or anyone else with nothing to lose, I can still commiserate with the utter desperation because in the moment, I feel I have everything to lose. And when I say desperation, I don't mean just being depressed. I mean the existential dread of having temporarily lost your desire to live and not knowing how to get it back, even if you are not dying of an incurable illness. But it's the commitment to seeing the dignity in my pain and embracing my constructive aching that makes the difference. That's my catalyst. I stay plugged into the inspiring vibrations of fine art, music, literature, poetry, movies, movies, and touching stories like Abraham Lincoln's struggle with his chronic sadness. In his book, Lincoln's Melancholy, author Joshua Wolf Schenck writes, Lincoln is only one example of a person whose enormous vitality, effectiveness, humor, empathy, all these characteristics we associate with the best of human existence run hand in hand with terrific pain. So even if you aren't trying to change the world, like Abraham Lincoln, you still have to feel the pain. And you know what? That's okay. Thanks for listening. This is John Silomparis, MFT. Take good care.